Let's pray. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He is with me to the end. Lord, what amazing words that we've been singing all morning, and I pray that you would help us to take these words to heart in ways where they become far more than just words. That we would truly be able to, in awe, say, what a Savior. Lord, keep us from ever getting used to our forgiveness, to our reconciled relationship with you. Please keep us from ever taking it for granted, presuming upon your mercy. You have been merciful to us, and we're grateful. You've forgiven us and declared us righteous and reconciled us to yourself and given us one another to walk out this relationship with. And so we pray that as we have gathered here and now gather around your word together that the Holy Spirit would work in powerful ways, humbling us, filling us with gratitude, and helping us to worship in deeper ways than we ever have before. And so we pray that your word would guide us and the spirit would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to do good things in each of our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 as we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, this amazing book that talks about God's work, especially in unexpected, unlikely places. I am aware that every time I come to worship, before I'm able to worship the way God calls me to, there need to be certain heart realities going on, certain attitudes and emotions and character traits. It's, it's not enough just to sing the right words and mostly the right key, it's really important to sing from hearts that are in a right place. You can't be proud and worshipful. Those two just don't go together. Humility and gratitude are at the heart of our hearts when we're truly worshiping. I often wonder how much of my worship is pleasing to God and how much is dissonant to him, even though it may be sung rightly. And so we've got to seek to cultivate hearts of humility and gratitude if we're ever going to be worshipers. We've been worshiping all morning, and the beauty is we come to do this to deepen our humility. We don't arrive as humble as we could or should be, for sure, but as we gather, simply gathering is a humbling act. It's an expression of humility. I'm not okay by myself. I need to gather with God's people or the, the coals of my heart that worship him will die out and my pride will grow and I won't worship God from a heart of humility and pride. But humility is incredibly hard to cultivate. It is really the opposite of what a fallen human heart is all about. Humility and gratitude are not things that come naturally to us, which is why we so admire those things when we see them in other people. Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, with his trusty Sherpa guide Tenzin, 
was the first, were, were the first two men to climb Mount Everest, the highest peak on the planet, and what an accomplishment. And, and he went on to do amazing things. He didn't sort of rest on his laurels after Sir Edmund Hillary climbed Mount Everest. Uh, he, he became quite active, especially in Nepal and among the, the people there. And he was awarded a citizenship before he died of Nepal. He, the people loved him. He, he loved the Sherpas. He loved the, the people of the Himalayas and, and just became an amazing man in addition to having climbed Mount Everest, incredibly accomplished. Well, he went back to... Uh, Nepal, and someone recognized him, even though he was older. This is a story from his biography. And he was known for his humility in the midst of this great accomplishment. And apparently, some people recognized him when he was in Nepal and asked if they could take a photograph of him with him. And so he agreed, and they were taking the photograph, and they said, would you please hold this ice axe in the photograph, and he said, sure, and he's holding the ice axe, and these people are taking a photograph with him, and as this is happening, a young man walks by who's a mountaineer and apparently doesn't recognize that it's Edmund Hillary taking this photograph with some people, and he walks over and stops the photograph from being taken and said, excuse me, you're not holding that ice axe properly. Let me show you how, he said no one would hold an ice axe that way who knew what they were doing. So let me show you how it's done. And he, he had Hillary hold the ice axe differently than he had been. And everyone was appalled at this naive arrogance, but it didn't even seem to phase Edmund Hillary at all. He actually thanked the man for the helpful correction and proceeded to take the photograph, and the man walked away quite proud of himself. I would have not reacted that way at all. Humility is an elusive thing. It's something that doesn't come easily to us. And when we see it, we marvel at it. It's especially hard in selfie culture. This, this photograph is just stunning to me. Here you have the Parthenon on the Acropolis, one of the eight wonders of the ancient world, but it's obvious that this young lady thinks she is by far the most important thing in the photograph and should have the primary attention. This is the culture in which we all live and are encouraged all the time to live in. How do you cultivate humility and gratitude in a selfie culture? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We're going to be thinking about the kind of devotion, the kind of worship that comes from the kind of humility that really knowing God produces in our hearts. It's the challenge of humble confidence, which is so elusive. And even though it's elusive, we're commanded to be humble. Now, it's something God needs to do in our hearts, but it's also a command. This is specifically to younger men, but it could apply to all of us as well. You younger men, maybe younger men need this a little more than most people. Perhaps that's true. 
Yes? Okay. Thank you. That's a young man who said that. He's humble. That's a humble act. Don't let it make you proud. Uh, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clo Isn't that beautiful? Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God, oh my, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Can you imagine the thought that Almighty God is opposed to you? He is in opposition to you? That, that's not a comforting thought. But it is a comforting thought that if, if humility becomes something true of us, we find grace bestowed upon us by this God who opposes the proud. And so here's the command. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So this isn't just a character trait we get by thinking about ourselves. This is a character trait we get by thinking about Almighty God and being under His hands so that at the proper time, what? He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You know, when you have a friend who's anxious, you don't say, repent of your pride. But maybe we should. <laughs> that seems cruel, but it seems that this verse is saying if we're anxious, maybe pride is part of the problem. Maybe we think we've got to solve all the problems. Maybe the weight of the world is on our shoulders because we're putting ourselves in the place of God. So humble yourselves under his mighty hand. And in other words, find peace. Don't have your soul flooded with anxiousness. And so this challenge of humility is before us to obey this command. And the key to obedience to this command is not generating some feeling in ourselves, it's seeing God for who He is and living life under His mighty hand. Now there's this idea that the humble person is a cowering, self-loathing, passive person. That is completely not what Christian humility is about. Lewis puts it this way. Christian humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. There's this interesting paradox, this dynamic in Christian humility that actually the most insecure people are also the most proud, pride, proud, pride, proud, proud. God's humbling me with my inability to say this word. Yes, are the most proud, are the most prideful, are the most arrogant. There's this interesting reality that actually in the Christian view of things, the most confident people are also the most humble. You know, the person who's always talking about themselves that is so arrogant, legitimately arrogant, is also insecure. And so we tend to be this ridiculous bundle of insecurity and arrogance all wrapped together. And we sort of swing on this pendulum back and forth. But the key is to know who God is, in that everything we have is a gift. 
I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. I think of it so often. What do you have that you did not receive? Rhetorical question, people. Nothing. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so we need to know who God is, and we need to know that he loves us extravagantly, expensively, and expressively. And I think the best way to really understand humility and gratitude and the heart behind true worship is to see it. Here I am talking about it. But I think the best thing is to see it. So we're going to see it this morning in our passage before us. We're going to see what humility looks like, what gratitude looks like, and then what devotion and worship really looks like in Luke chapter 7. Here we go. This is a beautiful display of one of my heroes. She is amazing. I can't wait to meet her. You may find this strange, but I actually have a document on my computer of the people I want to meet when I get to heaven in order. I do. I don't know if there will be like sign-ups or waiting. I don't know. How in the world is this going to work? Obviously, Jesus will be first, but I have a hard time thinking like I'll get right like in front of the line and spend time with Jesus in the flesh. So, uh, but I do, I have a list of people, you know, the likely suspects of people, Moses, David, Elijah, Peter, Paul, those, those sorts of heroes of the faith. But do you know through the years, as I've understood what it really means to be a Christian and what I want to cultivate in my own heart, it's not that those heroes of the faith are, faith are unimportant, but there are these unnamed heroes we find in the Bible that are fascinating to me that throughout the years on my list have been moving closer and closer to the top of the list. Like the one leper among the other ten, but alone came back to thank Jesus. We don't know his name, but he was humble and grateful. The, the widow who gave everything she had that nobody but Jesus noticed, she gave it all. We don't know her name. We don't even know she knows Jesus noticed her. Well, she does now. But at the time, she didn't. The Canaanite woman whose daughter is demon-possessed and comes to Jesus and begs him and says, have mercy on me. And he says, but you're not among the chosen people. And she said, but even dogs take some of the crumbs off the table. And he he is marveling at her faith and her daughter's healed. The blind beggar who in spite of all the social pressure to stop won't stop crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. This humility, this gratitude, this dependence is so fascinating and this morning we have another nameless hero of the faith who's only known as a sinful woman from the city luke 7 verse 36 one of the pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the pharisee's house and reclined at table and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she, watch the verbs describing her activity, when she learned that he was reclining at table 
in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't you want to meet her? <laughs> Don't you want to be like her? I do. Well, we have here yet another meal. I don't know if you know this, but who really loves to eat in here? Yeah, okay, it's not as many as I would hope, but um, I love to eat and I love food. I actually, it's one of the things I really wrestle with is, is my love for food inordinate? And, um, and because I, sometimes I'm eating, especially with people, and I'm thinking, am I enjoying this? more than I actually should be because this is just amazing. I love this. But I, I think mostly it's completely right. And do you know, if you love to eat, Luke is your gospel. It's true. Luke, I, I would love to know Luke's personal eating interests, but he, he's fascinated with food and with meals. Do you know in Luke, there are 19 meals 19 times people are eating. 13 are only found in Luke. 
it's it's amazing. He he doesn't even just have the Lord's Supper. He he finishes it off on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus makes himself known when? In the breaking of the bread. Yeah, as he breaks bread with these two these two disciples on the road to Emmaus who are discouraged, they see him. He reveals himself in the breaking of the bread. Luke loves meals. He loves food. And there's good reason for that, especially in this Mediterranean first century context where meals were a major focal point. It wasn't a fast food culture. You didn't swing by the drive-thru and head out. You, you gathered. You prepared, sometimes for long periods of time. You invested money when you had people to your home. You prepared your home. It was open. It was communal. It was provisional. It was relational, it was meaningful, and it was beautiful. And, and I would encourage us all to think about the importance of this, even though we live in a fast food culture. Gathering in homes and preparing. Donna was preparing for a good chunk of time yesterday for the people we're having to our home today. And, and there's love in that. There's love in going to Stater Brothers. You don't always feel it, but there is. It's a loving thing to go and buy more groceries than you would have otherwise or go buy them at all when you otherwise wouldn't have said, just find something, there are eggs in there. No, there's, there's a, a hospitality in a powerful biblical way here. And it's, it's not just Luke, it's throughout the Bible. I mean, what's the first issue in the garden? A piece of fruit, right? And it's throughout the whole Bible. What, is, what does Esau give his birthright for? Porridge. Yeah, all through the whole, whole law, there are all these dietary laws, and there's feasts, and there's fasting, and, and the, the, the New Testament doesn't leave that out. You've got all these examples, and, and what's the central observance of Christian worship? It's the Lord's Supper. How is it all going to end with a wedding banquet? which is what it's all pointing to. There are reasons for this. It's not just the communal relational aspect. It's the looking forward to that great day when we all gather at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And as we take the Lord's Supper, as we gather in our homes, these are all just foreshadowings of that great day to come. So here we have another meal. And we have a contrasting picture of two people at the meal. The host, Simon, who's having this meal in his own home, and the real host, this woman, who's just a sinner from the city. Here's Simon, a Pharisee. You know, the, this upper echelon of religious identity. He's religious, he's moral, he's successful, right? Now, Jesus doesn't bash this guy. He, he doesn't look good in this picture. And I, every time I've read those words, Simon, I have something to say to you. Ooh, I'm wondering what Jesus has to say to me. But, but he doesn't come out, Jesus isn't bashing this guy. Actually, it's pretty admirable. Most of the Pharisees seem to be against Jesus. Here's one, like Nicodemus, who's interested enough not only to say, tell me what you have to say, teacher, but to invite him to his home to do that. So let's, let's not see Simon as some other person. Some of the most Pharisaical people are the people who love denouncing the Pharisees. And so... So let's not be pharisaical about the Pharisees. Let's not be judgmental of the judgmental. 
Let's not be self-righteous about self-righteous people. Let's include ourselves in that problematic group. He's he's invited Jesus. He seems to have broken ranks with most of the Pharisees like Nicodemus. He seems to be intellectual, but that's part of his problem. It seems to be a lot of head and not enough heart. And he seems to be woefully unaware of his great need for forgiveness, which is true of a lot of religious people, maybe most religious people, maybe most successful people. I know I've said to you before, I'm more hopeful walking into a prison to preach Christ than a boardroom. People who have life circumstances foisted upon them or invited by themselves into their lives that have ravaged their lives tend to know their need more. So you've got this very successful religious man, and then you've got this woman who's a beautiful mess. She is a beautiful mess. She's naked and unashamed in front of Jesus and these judgmental eyes looking upon her in this moment. She lets down her hair, and she breaks open this this ointment, and she anoints Jesus' feet, and she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. Incredible. Did you see the eight verbs used to describe her? She's anything but some passive, cowering person. She's active. She's, She's determined. She's devoted. Did you see it? She, she learns of Jesus coming. She brought her ointment. She stood. And then she gets down and weeps and wets his feet and wipes his feet and kisses his feet and anoints him. We find out at the end In verses 47 and 50, more activity. She loves. She expresses faith and gratitude. This is very active humility and devotion. Her faith in Jesus leads to forgiveness by Jesus, and her heart is flooded with gratitude and love and worship, and she is a devoted, determined woman expressing active humility As Simon sits there, yes, hosting the party, let's give him props for that, but Jesus points out how quite passive he was and inactive he was, contrasted with her activity and her devotion in the way he cared for Jesus when he came in. He says, yes, you're hosting this party, but do you see the very personal, relational devotion and determination to express that devotion in this woman? In other words, he's saying, yeah, you're the host formally, But she's the host relationally. She's the one showing a welcoming heart and activity toward Jesus. As Simeon shows minimal motions of hospitality, just going through the motions. Appearances can be deceiving. That's a very true aphorism. Appearances can be deceiving. We, as God's people, need to learn to have eyes to see what's true in spite of what's on the surface that can be so deceiving. After all, the one we follow, Jesus, we're told, had nothing in his appearance to draw us to him. Here's this woman that every one of us would have been tempted to judge. 
And she's the only one who really seems to see Jesus rightly. And she becomes a hero, a nameless hero of the faith. So looking forward to meeting her. So, this woman, this sinner woman from the city becomes the true host. She loves and she recognizes that she has been loved expensively, extravagantly, and expressively, and so that's how she loves back, and that's the bottom line here. We have been loved greatly by God, and so we have been freed by him to love like he does. We love because he first loved us, and she loves in a way that brings shame upon herself from the crowd, but not in her own heart. She knows it's right to love Jesus the way she is, to express her devotion to Jesus the way she is. And like David who danced with all his might and was appalling even to his own wife for his extravagant worship, when the ark returns to Jerusalem, when worship of God and the presence of God comes back home, he dances with all his might. And his own wife is appalled. And the bottom line here is she knew her sins were great and she knew she had been forgiven much. She's desperate, she's dependent, she's determined. And then Jesus tell this, tells this parable to contrast these two. The, 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 the debt is basically two years of wages versus two months of wages. They're both significant debts, but one far more than the other. And Jesus tells this parable not to say that Simon or any of us need forgiveness less than this woman. It's like when Jesus said, I came for the sick, not the well. He's not saying some people are well and some are sick. He's saying some people realize they're sick and others don't. Some people realize how much they need forgiveness and others don't. And Simon's in this category of not realizing and she's in the category of realizing she has a great debt to be forgiven. We're all sick. We're all in debt. And so a big question this morning is, do you know how much you need forgiveness? I know probably most of you were raised in wonderfully nurturing Christian homes. I know some of you weren't. But probably the majority of you were raised in Christian families. Statistically, that's pretty significantly true. And when that's the case, it's easy because of, of those nurturing families when you're protected by the ravages of sin by those wonderful nurturing families, you can actually think you don't need forgiveness as much as someone else who hasn't been preserved in those sorts of ways. And you can actually start to look down on them and put them in a different category of the need for forgiveness than the one you're in. But the Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. No one is righteous. No, not one. You can't be a good person apart with Jesus. You can't be a little better and a little less in need of forgiveness than the next person. We're all in this together. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all in this sinful place together. No temptation has seized you that isn't common to man. It works in the other way, too. Never put yourself in a category of needing forgiveness that you think you need it more than anybody else. 
We are all equally sin sick and broken and rebellious against God and he loves to forgive all of that sin exhaustively. And when you realize how much you've been forgiven, it takes over. I mean, I know within three minutes of meeting a Christian that they know they've been forgiven much. You get them talking about when they became a Christian. And even if it was 60 years ago, they still get gripped by this. And you can see the emotion on their face, and they really believe grace is amazing. But we can so easily forget that. We can so easily get used to it and numb to it and presume upon it. And so this morning, we've got to ask God to make us like this sinner woman from the city whose name we don't even know. Because she is an incredible example of knowing how much she needs forgiveness and knowing she's been forgiven much by Jesus. And this leads her to the kind of love that she has been shown. She now loves the way she's been loved. Extravagantly and expensively and expressively. In this beautiful action. A beauty that defies cost-benefit analysis. A beauty that defies return on investment statistics. She's not saying, gee, if I, if I pour out this ointment, if I trash my reputation in front of all these righteous religious people, what will the cost be to me socially? Well, maybe they'll even kill me. Who knows? She's not calculating on her way in. She is expressing on her way in because she has been loved and forgiven so beautifully by Jesus. It's impossible to put a price on what God has done for us in Christ. And so she's not trying to put a price on her devotion, a calculation of her devotion. And sometimes we're too concerned about the pragmatic usefulness of things. Listen to one pastor from Montana. I don't move there just because this guy talks so well. What in the world? Uh, stay here. We need you here. A lot of, lot of battles here, all right? Um, listen to what he says. Usefulness is not the most important thing in the universe. Usefulness is not our God. Uh, efficiency is not our God. Public opinion is not our God. Traditional boundaries of politeness are not our God. Jesus is our God. And it's useful to keep up our material, to use up our material resources to honor and glorify Him. That's beautiful. God is extravagant, and those who've been loved by an extravagant God love extravagantly. He gives us the most extravagant, most expensive gift He could in His Son, Jesus Christ. An outrageous gift worth far more than we could ever deserve. God's grace is extravagant. It's built into the word grace. Jesus gives everything he has for us. He gives his very life. And so we realize we have been forgiven much and all we have is gift. And so we need to be people who recognize how much we've been loved. Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I love that. That we would ever doubt God's daily provision when he's given us his son. He's saying, do you realize how... That doesn't make any sense, Paul is saying. How, how will he not give us everything we need 
If he's given us his son, you can depend on him. You can count on him. And that frees us up to love him and love others extravagantly and expensively and expressively. He gave us his son. So so how do we do this? How do we cultivate this? By doing what we're doing right now. Gathering as his people around his word. And and just a a few things. The first thing I think we need to focus on, and I heard Doug Axe did a great job with this through my son Isaac uh, when when he was talking about, I looked at Isaac's notes he took, Doug, when you were, Isaac took copious notes when you were speaking at at the junior high retreat this weekend. Thank you for doing that, brother. Um, I'm sure you had other things you could have been doing, perhaps, when you're doing it. So thank you. Yeah, but he took notes, and it sounds like Doug did a great job of, of seeing God as creator. And in some ways, that's where it all needs to start, right? Because when you realize the first verse of the Bible is true, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that your very existence, everything you have, everything you are, is utterly, absolutely dependent on God himself, how could you be proud How could we be arrogant when when we're utterly, absolutely dependent on God for everything? So to grow in humility, we've got to understand God as creator. And so we know God as creator. We become like the sinner woman from the city when we realize that he is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. He dwells in a high and holy place. And then listen to what else is true. And he dwells also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the heart of a contrite, uh, 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 to revive the heart of the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, the most humble are the most exalted in God's kingdom. And so we know God is creator and we grow in humility and gratitude. We know God and grow in humility and gratitude and devotion when we know God in Christ. Listen, the the ethics that flows from our understanding of Jesus. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' example, his mind, his servant-hearted actions become our model for the way we love like him. And so we grow as we know God as creator. We grow as we know God as savior. Having a healthy fear of him that leads us to an understanding of our sin. You don't get to an understanding of your sin by primarily focusing on your sin. You get to a deeper understanding of your sin by focusing on God. And you say with Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and I said, woe is me. And so we know God in Christ Pride cannot live at the foot of the cross. I asked a very godly, wise man one time how he was so humble. J.I. Packer, arguably the greatest evangelical theologian of the last century, and incredibly humble. I said, Dr. Packer, how are you so humble? He said, oh, how could anyone be proud at the feet of Jesus? 
It's true when you're at the feet of Jesus, dying in your place, providing for you every day. Pride can't live there. We know God as creator. We know God in Christ. But we also know God in the church. We grow in humility and devotion. We grow in our expressiveness and extravagance in the way we love when we know God in the context of the local church. This is so important. The foundational context that we get to experience and express the extravagant, expensive, expresses the love, love of God is in the context of the local church. Remember I asked Ajit Fernando one time, a minister from Sri Lanka, I said, you know, I always ask these kinds of questions when I talk to somebody from a different culture. I, I say, what are our blind spots in this culture as Christians? He didn't even blink. He said, oh, here's what it is. Do tell, Ajit. And he said, you have an amazingly developed theology of church growth, but no theology of church groaning. The American church doesn't teach people how to suffer well. And I said, well, how do we suffer well and learn to do that when our lives are so comfortable, unlike yours in Sri Lanka? as a Christian, when we spend half our lives in Starbucks, miffed about the amount of foam on our lattes. How do we do that? You know what he said? He didn't, again, he didn't even pause. He said, oh, just stay committed to people. Just stay committed to people and you'll be humbled. You'll suffer. You'll struggle. You'll be sanctified in ways you never would have other ways. And you know what? The people in your life will suffer and struggle and learn because of you. It's true, we stay committed to the people of God in the local church, and we see everything changes. L listen, listen to C.S. Lewis. When I first became a Christian, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology, and I wouldn't go to the churches. I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. Not here at Grace, people. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then, gradually, my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns were being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary Comfort. I can't tell you how many times I've been humbled by simply knowing you. The way you live your lives in front of me and everybody else. So many of you, without even knowing it, without saying a word directly to me, humble me. At times, in a very healthy way, convict me simply in who you are. I can't tell you what a joy it is to be here in my 23rd year here at Grace continuing to be humbled and convicted and encouraged and blessed, first and foremost, simply by who you people are. I mean, I, 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 it's so hard to even look at your faces. i got to stop. I'm going to preach this way. Oh, there's a baptismal. Oh, that's right, we're having baptisms tonight. I'll preach from the baptismal. Um, I've always used humor to diffuse my emotions. All right, um, yeah, it, the people of God are this context in which we grow, but they become the source of our humility. When I talk, as I said to a brother or sister who you can tell knows they've been forgiven much. You know, I preached on missions a few weeks ago, and I, I talked to the Dixes after, and I said, how was the sermon? I mean, when you preach on missions and the Dixes are sitting there, it's kind of hard. 
And they said, you got it exactly right when you said missions. It's because we love Jesus. Adam said the same thing the week before. It's love for Christ that drives us to do what we do. It's humility that comes from knowing God as creator and knowing God as savior and knowing God among his people. Knowing God as the people of God. Just praying on Tuesday mornings or, or praying with people is humbling and encouraging all at the same time. And our love is, is deepened, our humility is deepened when we see the example and live life in the context of one another. And then we are able to start to love extravagantly, expensively, and expressively. And expressively is important. It's not enough just to really love Jesus. You, people need to know that in our words, in our worship, and in our devotion. Came across this quotation this week. Sometimes when I'm in a worship service, I see teenage boys who appear to be bored and uninterested. More often than not, they're sitting with unengaged fathers who never open their Bibles and refuse to sing. Dads, be the spiritual leader you want your sons to become one day. I'm so grateful especially, I think, for men in this church who are engaged and worshipful and devoted and leading their families and setting an example for me and others. My friend Jerry Root likes to say there are kind of two sorts of people in the world. Here I am people, and there you are people. Dave Holmquist, the coach of Biola, says there are two kinds of people in this world. People who put the shopping cart back away after they're done and people who don't. You're going to have to run back to Stater Brothers and fix that, that she left it after this. Yeah, it, it, is there an other focus or a self-focus? As we have been loved deeply and forgiven much, we can develop a subconscious self-forgetfulness, it said. And now, even when we see sin in others, even blatant sin in others, we can use that as a means of saying, Lord, how do I have that same sin in myself? Listen to Jonathan Edwards. Resolved to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am. And when I encounter sin in others, I will feel, at least in my own mind and heart, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses or failings as others. I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility, even shame in myself. I will use awareness of their sinfulness and weakness only as an occasion to confess my own sins and misery to God. And as we deepen our understanding of our sin, we will increasingly die to self, which is at the heart of it all. Listen to George Mueller. There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions and preferences, tastes and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved to God. So in the context of the people of God, as we love and care for one another, there's an increasing dying to self. Other things we can do practically, invite people to speak honestly into your life. In a famous poem, Robert Service says, I have some friends, some honest friends, and honest friends are few. That's sadly true. 
We'd rather go along easily than speaking truth into each other's lives, even if it stings. But we need to love each other that well. Prayer is humbling. We need to go to war with our pride every day of our lives. And as we make progress, it's so tempting to be proud of that progress. <laughs> There's this vicious circle where we, we slay pride and we take pride in slaying pride. That's what C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters encourages this demon to do. Get this man proud of how he's growing in humility. And then through daily simple obedience in the context of the people of God, we grow. And then, by God, we seek to learn and grow in ways we never could otherwise as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God before him and before one another. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9, 8 in closing. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It's so easy to do the right things as religious people as we grow more and more distant from God. But as we see God as our creator and as our savior in the context of the people of God, we will grow and bear fruit like we never could have imagined. Lord, help us to grow in our humility, in our awareness of who you are, in our gratitude, in our devotion. And Lord, help us to so believe we've been completely forgiven and loved extravagantly that we forgive and love extravagantly. Lord, keep us from the distractions and the dilution and the petty battles that are tearing people apart these days, even in the church. And help us to love well, because we've been so well loved. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.